I'm Holly Baker, the Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and a podcast producer for the History Department at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. I'll be your host for this episode of Every Tongue Got to Confess. Every Tongue Got to Confess is a podcast designed to document the dynamic discussions about education, enterprise, institutions, and activism, intrinsic to the ideology that founded Eatonville and shaped its most famous daughter. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore issues facing communities of color globally by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Founded by the Association to Preserve Eatonville, the Zora Festival has long embraced an educational aim inspired by Zora Neale Hurston's celebration of black culture and life. This production is a joint project between the Association to Preserve Eatonville Community the Consortium for Critical Diversity in a Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University, and the University of Central Florida in Orlando. During the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, I talked with Dr. Julian Chambliss about Afrofuturism. Dr. Chambliss is Professor of English and core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity in a Digital Age Research, or CEDAR at Michigan State University, as well as the Val Berryman Curator of History at the Michigan State University Museum. He's also a scholar of the real and imagined city who explores comics, culture, and the black imaginary. Have a listen to our conversation. Tell me about how you got into your work in Afrofuturism. How did you first become interested in it? Uh, I became interested in Afrofuturism through comics because Black Panther is often referred to as an Afrofuturist character. And, you know, the idea of Afrofuturism as a kind of alternative mode of thinking and the sort of potentialities around Black, Black future and science fiction and things like that really sort of motivated my thinking. But the, the academic thing that first got me interested in it was, was like Black Panther, like how do you think about Black Panther? A lot of people think about Black Panther as an Afrofuturist character. And, you know, once you start thinking about Afrofuturism, then you sort of see other kind of Black perspective examples throughout time. And you go like, oh, okay, well, that's Afrofuturist too. And so that's how it started. How do you define Afrofuturism? I define Afrofuturism as um, Black speculative practice that critiques the status quo and projects a kind of liberatory vision for the future, right? So, I mean, I think whenever Black people imagine it's sort of Afrofuturist by default. So all Afrofuturist work doesn't necessarily have to be like about the future per se. Every Black person alive, whenever they're alive, is living towards some sort of Afrofuture. So it's, imp- it's so it's like there's a there's a certain kind of time politics in Afrofuturism that makes like all Black people who are struggling towards liberation part of the same sort of intellectual movement. So uh, it's that sort of mix of speculative practice and liberation that I think of as its core to Afrofuturism. Give me some examples of some uh, Afrofuturist uh, art or movies or books or even songs just that have inspired you? Afrofuturist stuff that inspires me, of course, I'm very interested in comic stuff. So like Black Panther is a big uh, inspiration for me. Uh, Music wise, you know, I think of groups like Outkast, 
as really sort of interesting sort of Afrofuturist figures. Uh, I think a lot of hip hop actually uh, in form and function kind of serves in a kind of Afrofuturist way. And, I, and that really is something that I think of as I've learned more about Afrofuturism, actually, as you think more about like the sonic quality of Afrofuturism. Uh, I think jazz, a lot of jazz is Afrofuturism. Like I'm a big fan of like a bebop actually. Like I, if that was gonna pick like, was there one particular kind of jazz? Like I, I, I have in the past been a huge fan of bebop. Um, I do like experimental, I do see some of those experimental jazz figures as very Afrofuturist, right? I mean, of course, people talk about John Coltrane and Sun Ra, uh, and I do like Sun Ra um, as an Afrofuturist figure. Uh, he's very sort of provocative, both in terms of like bringing together a kind of acoustic experimentation, but also in a sort of like performance, like the visual performance. You know, Parliament Funkadelic is that. I like LaBelle. My mom used to play LaBelle. And like, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, LaBelle's Afrofuturist, right? Like, there, there are a lot of acts that you go like, oh, you know, Prince can be argued to be Afrofuturist, yeah. Uh, so it's like, oh yeah, there are a lot of a lot of sort of like interlocking things. Films, you know, Brother from Another Planet. Uh, I think of that as an Afrofuturist film. The Last Angel of History is a really important Afrofuturist film. I do like it. I think it's super complicated, and like I never show it to students until like we well into a class. I know people like to show it like right at the beginning of class, but I feel like unless you have some reference points, seeing The Last Angel of History in the first couple of days of class, it's more questions than answers, right? Those are things I would I would think of as, as Afrofuturists. You know, obviously there are earlier things like Blake from Martin Delaney that, you know, as a historian of the United States, I really feel like, well, you know, it's a really important work, like Sutton Briggs's work, Paul Hopkins' work. Like, I find those figures really interesting in part because, like, the context in which they're operating and the politics uh, in which they, they sort of offer. Um, I think a lot of scholars think about Afrofuturism uh, as being sort of connected to revolution, like social uplifts, transformation. And so when you look at works from the past, you know, the question becomes the context in which they're trying to format this revolution. They're trying to uplift, they're trying to transform society. You said that your interest in comics uh, got you interested in Afrofuturism. And I want to know, um, you know, when did you feel that connection with comics? Um, well, I started reading comics at a really early age. The first thing I remember reading is a comic, but I'm sure I read something before that. I'm sure I had a reader book or something. I don't know. Uh, but I, I remember reading comics. So I've always been a fan of comics. In terms of, of uh, a question of career, when I went to grad school, I wasn't studying comics, right? I wasn't, I wasn't approaching um, speculative work uh, as a part of my dissertation because my dissertation is in the United States history and it's primarily on my dissertation on planning in the early 20th century. But that subject matter, planning in the 20th century, intersects with a lot of things that is comics, like visual narratives, plans with visual narratives, the nature of the urban environment being depicted in uh, popular culture. You know, one of the things that 
I wrote about my dissertation was like, a, you know, kind of dread associated with urbanization and it playing itself out in um, literature, like essays and, and things being written, right? So there's a, there's an element of like a popular imagination about the city versus a real, the reality of the city and, and the mythologies associated with those, 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 that popular imagination fueling choices around policy, right? And, and that's why, you know, this, this conversation between the real and the imagined, I always contend is like super important. What people imagine for spaces and places uh, often become prescriptive to like what they want to see, right? Like what, what they believe those places are. And so um, when I started teaching, you know, when you have a job, you have to teach a lot of different classes. I, my first job was at a really teaching intensive institution. You know, and that gives you opportunity to develop a class and I developed a class that was a modern history class, but was using comic books as an artifact, right? Like that was the, that was the premise. Cause like, you know, if you, once you start to understand comics, you go, oh yeah, you could totally use comics as, as a, as a means to, to really sort of dig into, especially as a, a modernist, right? American modernist, right? Like a, a class about the United States. Like there are specific genres, superhero genre is very much an American genre. Like other comic, every country of the world has comics. Not every country in the world created superheroes, right? Like the United States created superheroes. And so, you know, my fascination with superheroes as a, a boy and a fan, uh, as a reader, I'm sort of dovetailed with like, well, how would I use this to talk about the historiography of modern America? Like what comics would fit with what sort of major shifts and changes in evolution and how would we how would we do that? And and that and that became, you know, a class that I taught and and conceptualizing that class. I'm like, oh it'd be great if we had a book that that would do X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, I just with some colleagues made that book and like like well we could do this because like it doesn't seem to exist whenever you whenever you say you're gonna make a book though <laughs> by the time it came out like there were a lot of books like that but like when we started there weren't that many so but that that was the pathway like it's it started out that yeah i was a fan of comics but that wasn't really my career path my career path was very much around U.S. history, urban development questions, planning questions, race questions, and related to like space and place. And then using comics and sort of recognizing that, you know, comics are urban narrative. And what, is, what does that mean? Like how do you use those primary sources of comics to tell particular kinds of urban, urban development or American urbanization stories, right? Um, and that, you know, that's relatively straight forward at some level, but it, it is interdisciplinary in a way. Well, for the past several years, you've been involved with the uh, Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. And every uh, year, there's a different theme for this festival. And uh, in 2020, this year, the theme was Afrofuturism. Um, so you must have been uh, pretty excited to be able to delve further into you know, Afrofuturism within the conference. And um, I wonder, in your mind, what's the link between Zerono Hurston and Afrofuturism? The conference theme was my idea, right? And so the conference is planned in five-year cycles. And the first year cycle 
it's like a question that guides the, the talk. It's like the first question, like, what is Afrofuturism, right? And, and the truth of the matter is, is that when you go and look at the, the sort of like literature on Afrofuturism, if you think about, you know, some of these sort of definitional questions around Afrofuturism, this idea of Black speculative practice at the heart of Afrofuturism uh, can be applied to a number of past figures. And one, one prominent figure that a lot of Afrofuturists point to is Zordon Hurston. And they point to Hurston's uh, both work as a folklorist, but also her, rightly so, her theoretical work, right? Like, you know, um, Hurston's work on the contributions of Black people to, to English language, right? To the speech, uh, her collecting of folklore, uh, and by you know, I point very specifically to her collection of like Gulf state folklore because of her emphasis on collecting stories around the supernatural, like the witch stories, the devil stories. Uh, those are some of the first sort of like African American diasporic horror supernatural stories that are cataloged. Right, like you know, can you find an earlier version than of those things, right? Uh, and so, you know, Hurston as a Afrofuturist is a person who very much considers uh, the black voice as a as a as a, a tool, as a a kind of technology, right? Like you know, you think about folklore, oral history, and, and the sound of people's voices. Uh, being very important to the Black experience, right? Both in terms of uh, a sort of liberatory narrative, you think about Big Real Hymn, uh, but also in terms of like cultural transmission, right? Like information passed from one generation to the next generation, right? Like, so the emphasis on oral um, sound as a sort of a tool for Black people in terms of liberation, of course, has multiple permutations. But the, the idea of like sound technology, like the voice as like a kind of cultural tool that is, is passing on information, is transforming people, uh, it's also really important. So like, you know, Zorno Hurston fits very neatly into a kind of Afrofuturist framework and the festival being a space where like the ideas of Afrofuturism can be expanded upon and thought about with some clarity, you know, in the sense that like, you know, there aren't, a heck of a lot of places that you can go to learn a lot about Afrofuturism, right? Like you can, there are some places you can go and there are events and things. One of my pitches when I was suggesting this is like, the festival could be the South by Southwest for Afrofuturism, right? Um, because it is a, a physical event, it is an intellectual event, it's a you know, cultural event. And I think that is true that like the, the festival as a destination for people interested in Afrofuturism for the next five years is going to be really, really important, right? Like our, our goals are to continue these explorations year to year. Like this first year was, what is Afrofuturism? Which is a fairly simple question, but next year, 2021, is what is the sound of Afrofuturism? Which is even, you know, even more, I think, in the in the sort of like sphere defined by Werner Hirschman, you know, what is the vision of Afrofuturism? Um, which sort of gets us this question of aesthetics, um, which again, you know, Werner Hirschman could fit into when you think about some of her work in the Apollo Renaissance and 
what is the spirit of Afrofuturism? And then what is the space of Afrofuturism? Every one of those questions gives gives us opportunity to revisit spaces and 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 ideas and and actors in the black past, but also contemporary activism and actors and, and actions, right? So there's a lot of opportunity, I think, related to, to the theme for the festival and a lot of opportunity for us to sort of hopefully bring people who are doing interesting things to the festival. You know, we have, we have to get past <laughs> the pandemic, but yeah, that is, that is the goal, I think. How does the theme of uh, Afrofuturism at the Zorno Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities continue Hurston's legacy? You know, I think that Hurston's legacy as an interdisciplinary scholar is at some level overlooked. And her centrality in sort of Black speculative practice is something that is appreciated by, I think, Afrofuturists, but probably not well known beyond those circles. And so by bringing the theme of Afrofuturism to the festival, you know, we can sort of think about uh, the longer legacy of Black speculative practice that inspired Hurston. Because you make the argument, of course, that Eatonville is itself an expression of Black speculative practice, right? Like that that space is a space of imagination. It sort of exists as a space of imagination for people who read Zorno Hurston. And I, you know, honestly often feel like that's somewhat problematic because like they've never actually been there. But it's also a space of, especially in the context of this creation, of a kind of speculative imagination around Black people and freedom, right? That they are at some level creating a space that will serve as an engine of future future creation, right? Like that, that, that they recognize in, um, the complexities of the social political circumstances that they're facing, a need to create create spaces and and sort of black town building of the late 1880s and 1890s is at some level a kind of affirmation of a of a, a black practice that is, you know, counter future in, in this context, counter future to white assertions of like erasure, right? Or or constriction or, you know, diminishing now, even though you do have like the creation of things like Quincy versus Ferguson and Jim Crow segregation, right? So you can think about the creation of like black only spaces, like black municipalities as a counter public action, right? Like a counter future action. Like I see the future that you are offering us white people and we counter with this future of a fully functional uh, town. Like that is really important to recognize in the context of, you know, that world nurtured Zornia Hurston, like her politics is a direct uh, outgrowth of having lived in a place like Eatonville. And that Black counterfuture practice is sort of exhibited in her approach to her work, um, her centrality of Blackness. Like she, you know, a lot of Afrofuturists seek to decenter uh, whiteness, right, to decenter the Eurocentric framework. And like Zorna Hurston was like, yeah, I don't, like she didn't, she never actually says the word, I want to decenter European. She just doesn't assume whiteness is the norm. She's like, there's nothing wrong with being black, right? So by default, she like decenters whiteness, right? So it's like, yeah, this is a, this is a really interesting place. 
to to be engaged in an Afrofuturist uh, landscape, the challenge for Black people as well as white people is to see like the, the, the totality of Afrofuturism, right? Because like everyone's seen Black Panther, but I'm like, it's more than Black Panther. Uh, <laughs> and I love Black Panther, right? Like I've written a lot about Black Panther at this point. Like I'm like four or five articles in on Black Panther at this point, but um, there's more to it than Black Panther. Uh, so there's, there's something to be said for thinking about that longer legacy of Black speculative practice and its manifestations in the past and as in the form of something like Eatonville, in the form of some of these other Black towns like Mount Bayou, you know, the Hobson City, like there's, there are these, these historic Black towns uh, and Black spaces, you know, even Harlem um, uh, represents a kind of like Black speculative practice, even, even though, um, you know, when it's sort of caught up in a broader set of uh, pressures from the outside, like there is a, a particular, a particular thing when a, when a municipality is Black created, right, and persists. Um, so many can, have been erased because they weren't, weren't, weren't ever incorporated. They were just simply absorbed into the, um, the mainstream. So uh, it's worth thinking about it in that way. Could you tell me a little bit about the podcast of the Zahra Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities um, called Every Tongue Got to Confess? Would you like to talk about that? Every season of Every Tongue Got to Confess is at some level, a catalog, uh, or attempt to catalog the intellectual activity at the festival, right? So we record at the festival and then release prior to the next festival. So the 2020 conversations uh, we recorded during the, the actual festival and they come out before, you know, the 2021 festival. And so, what you're, it's, you can think of it as a, a sort of summary of the previous year and a preview to next year. So in the context of our Afrofuturism cycle, the, the reality is that, you know, the, every time I got to confess, will sound a little bit different for the next few years because the cycle is very coherent, right? It's coherent around the idea of these questions, right? So I always think about it as there's a question and the actual programming of the festival is seeking to answer that question. What is Afrofuturism? The conversations that we're hearing in um, this season of Every Time I Got to Confess are conversations with people who, who are scholars of or practitioners of Afrofuturism. So they're writers and scholars who, who, who appeared at the festival and their work is very much of the moment that we're in, which is undoubtedly an Afrofuturist moment. One, another thing about this, this suggestion of the theme for the festival is that I was like, you know, Afrofuturism is, is having a moment and that moment is accelerating. So when I, you know, I suggested this before 2020, they were like, what's Afrofuturism? You know, by the time we got to 2020, like, oh, Black Panther, like, well, it's not exactly like I love Black Panther, but it's not exactly Black Panther. Like more to it than that, but yeah, Black Panther is a good way to start. So, um, you know, this is a great opportunity when we think about this season 
to have people who are in a kind of literary framing, the reason the literary framing is is so strong, like that we talk to writers and we talk to scholars, we talk about writers and talk about the Korean word, is because like that is a sort of baseline for a lot of the public. A lot of the public, when they think about Afrofuturism, if they don't think about Black Panther, they think about Octavia Butler, right? They think about things that are in print, they think about science fiction literature that has Black people in it. And even though Afrofuturism is about a kind of uh, Afro-diasporic production that can be in any number of fields, for a lot of people, their baseline is a literary one. And so when you're talking to, to when you're trying to answer that question, what is Afrofuturism, you're sort of gonna, you're making the right decision, I would argue, to go like, well, let's go with like this sort of literary thing, because that's a good jumping off point to go into these other sort of like epistemological examinations, right? So you start with, and, and, and because it's, so when it hurts, it sort of fits in all these things, right? Like, because if you say, you know, it's a literary thing, then in her work about Black language totally works. Uh, when you say it's a sound thing, and her work on like oral history totally works. Even when you think about it's an aesthetic thing, you can go back to her work in theater. It totally works, right? So it's like, it doesn't matter what you do. Like, Zornia Hurst, it totally works, right? So it, it kind of it kind of sort of like, you know, sells itself. I'm like, this isn't that hard. This sells itself. And like the, the podcast serves as, a, as that sort of repository in a way. It's not the actual repository. Um, in fact, one of the things that I'm doing with, with the interviews, like I usually am a person who's like doing these interviews either directly or indirectly. I'm like, I'm arranging the interviews and everything. And so the archive for the interviews is at the Benson Voice Library at Michigan State University Libraries, where the entire interview in its entirety is in, in the library archive, right? It's called Voices of the Black Imaginary. That's the name of the collection. Uh, and then we take those recordings and we edit them in the podcast to make these episodes. And then always at the end of the day, every time I've got to confess, you know, named for Zorno Hurston or history collection, it's trying to do the work of Hurston did, right? Like it's trying to catalog, reflect, engage with a kind of black diasporic knowledge base, right? And, and so that knowledge base right now is really focused on Afrofuturism. And so the podcast becomes like an archive of that too. And, and that's really interesting to me as a person who, who thinks about podcasts as like a kind of public scholarship um, process and, and something that um, provides a way for the public um, to, to get access to scholarly, scholarly dialogue, right? One of the challenges we have, as, I think as a society at this point is like, you know, People have information, but they don't necessarily have knowledge, right? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff coming your way, but do you understand what it means, right? Like podcasts, hopefully, can be a place where like, you know, experts can sort of slow down and talk to the public about these ideas that they think are really important in a way that the public can understand. I mean, that's really that's really the, the crux of it. And in that way, you know, I think the Zordon Hurston Festival itself as a public humanities uh, goal is core, right? Because it's a place that you can go to even before this, this cycle and get access to sort of black diasporic information that you wouldn't be able to get access to in an everyday way. Because like, you know, they're bringing 
people together, be it vendors or thinkers or activists or community people in a very particular way. So like there's ways that I feel like we're sort of delivering on um, the sort of historical a legacy of Zoyna Hurston in the podcast and, and, the, and the legacy um, of sort of Black speculative practice sort of tied up in Eatonville in general, right? So yeah, that's what I would say in terms of like, you know, the podcast and what's happening in season five, five, season five. So this is like five years that we've been doing it. Well, I look forward to um, the next, the continuation of the discussion about Afrofuturism at the 2021 Zorna Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. And I look forward to seeing you again. And um, thank you for your interview. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Every Tongue Got to Confess, the official podcast of the Zora No Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities in Eatonville. Dr. Julian Chambliss and I produced this podcast with the assistance of the University of Central Florida, the Association to Preserve Eatonville Community, and the Consortium for Critical Diversity in a Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. Be sure to find our podcast online on your favorite listening platform and subscribe to never miss an episode. Thank you.